Hello and welcome to the Finding Color in the Darkness podcast. Today, our guest is Cheryl Pichon. She was the first ever black female police sergeant in the Boston Police Force. Welcome, Hi. Cheryl. Can you tell us what made you decide to become a police officer? That's a story. There was a Saturday back in 1975 that they were supposed to play the trial of the, the Scottsboro Boys on television. My brother and I had made plans to watch that movie together and just have snacks and kind of veg out or whatever. The story was canceled. They canceled playing the movie in Boston because of the civil unrest that had been going on. Now, that's the first time I had ever seen anything like that. And then right after they made the announcement that the movie would not be shown, they aired this PSA, a public service announcement, saying that they were going to hold a police exam. And then everybody was welcome, and all he had to do was sign up. So I made a bet with my brother, who was four years older than me. I made a bet for a dollar that I would outscore him on the exam. So we both signed up for the exam, we both took the exam, but that's what started my police career. That's, it's a wild story, and it's great. I love to hear that just on a, on a whim. You mentioned the civil unrest. There are race riots, as I believe, I believe, going on at the time in Boston. Can you tell us, as a black female, what were your perceptions of the climate and our experiences both within and outside of the Boston police force at that time? Well, to tell the truth, Margaret, um, during that time when I, when I found out that I had gotten on the police department, the civil unrest had pretty much died down due to negotiations that had been done within the city of Boston. Not only that, the, our first year in the academy was a total year. So we weren't on the street. So I didn't have a, a way to kind of measure what the social environment was other than when I came home and watched the news. I didn't have firsthand knowledge of it. So by the time I did get on the street, like I said, there had been negotiations done and there had been concessions made by the city of Boston for hiring of minority officers and females and the federal government was granting money to police departments that would fulfill their obligations. So that's interesting to hear because you think of what's going on now versus then and it almost seems like it was more equitable at the time, what were your experiences? Did you face challenges in the beginning? Was it welcoming? Uh, were there things along the way? How did you see it evolve, and what were your experiences? Well, one of the experiences I remember as if it was yesterday was at our graduation party being held by one of my classmates. I was standing on this front porch, and a white police officer, another recruit, someone from my class, put a gun to my temple and told me, you know, if you weren't here, one of my friends would be on, on a job in your place. You just got this job because you were a black female. You wow. didn't get the job because you earned it. Surprisingly, the idea that a gun was at my temple didn't affect me. It was the matter that he had told me that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the fact that I was a black female. And it was a matter that I had to explain to him that actually I had scored higher than that person and that I came on with the same amount of competition that 
everybody else had, or so I thought. I was told later by an instructor that I actually got on because I represented what they called the twofer. And that was for the federal government. I was a black female. I was a black and a female. So therefore, I covered two of the requirements that they were looking for in order to get the Boston Police Department grant money. Well, I'm very sorry that you had to have that experience. Kim, when Kim Gaddy, your friend, yeah. she, she told us that uh, during her time as a police officer that that black women particularly were held to higher standards and, and women in general were held to higher standards in her experience because men didn't think that they could or that they would be protected in a certain situation. So it was often the case that they had to prove themselves on a regular basis. Kim came on a bit after I did. But yes, we were held to a different standard. One thing that was done, though, Margie, was that when white women were on the job, they were brought inside to clerk. They were pretty much warm when it was cold outside mm -hmm. and cool when it was warm outside. As black females or females of color, we oftentimes were put out there right into the community because it was the Boston Police Department's way of exhibiting us to show the community that yes indeed they were following the mandates that were prescribed by the federal government. See, you served nearly 32 years on the force. That's correct. And Kim had said of, of your time there she said everybody respected you and liked you though both the people that worked for you and the people for whom you worked that you were very well respected within the department. And um, so I'm, I'm sure that's a, that is true as she said it, but still you're, there had to be some changes along the way that were not um, pleasant. And could you tell us about some oh. of those changes? Margie, I mean, I'm so glad that Kim saw that because you couldn't have proven that by me. I have my problems on the job, and a lot of it was not fun. Now, I did, I did have opportunities. I've got to say that the vast majority of my life on the job was fantastic. I mean, I got opportunities that I would, I would dare to say I never would have experienced had I not been on the job. I mean, I had the chance to, to shake hands with Mandela, wave at Bishop Tutu, you know, I things that probably wouldn't happen if I was working for Liberty Mutual. There were lots of great things that happened, there were a lot of scary things. They were just, like I said, the experiences that I had that some what I would share and some I wouldn't share. Um, but with my daughter, I had a, I had my daughter, so I would tell for the longest time she did not know I was a police officer because I would change clothes at the station. So all she knew was I had a job. Then one day I came home and I got to change clothes. I came home in uniform. And she saw the uniform, and it was at the time where the police officer had died. So they showed his obituary picture, which we all take. And he was in uniform. And she saw the his uniform, saw my uniform. And it took us quite a few hours to peel her off the ceiling. It blew her mind. You know, so for the most part, there wasn't a, a great feeling for police officers. 
pretty much like it is today. But shortly after then, under the leadership of Bill Bratton, there was community policing where he took police officers out of the cruiser and put them on their feet in the community. And what a change. And a number of things happened. One, cops found out that people of color were people of color and basically had the same ideals and thoughts and wishes as they had when they were young growing up wherever they grew up. Nowadays, we're back in a situation where cops are in cruises, so they're riding around in an aluminum and steel container. They've got their windows shut, and they just drive through. Whereas then, they got out, they parked their cruises, they got out, and they walked. So there were no barriers between them and the people in the community. And it, it had a big change. It changed the relationship between the community and the people in the community and the police officers who were there to actually serve them. And at the time, people like Kim and I were going to community meetings or city meetings, and we were talking to people from the community, and that's what they were expounding, that, that the police officer, and it wasn't just the police officer, they actually knew the name of the police officer. And not to be corny, but there's a Norman Rockwell painting that has a police officer sitting next to a young black girl at a soda fountain. And that was always my thought of what policing was like. I never, ever expected that at any time I would be one, you know, and that I would, I would be there for people to gauge whether that's something that they want to do in their life or whether they want their children to do it or whether they were happy that their family members would do it. We just became part of that community that we were serving. And that made a difference to the quality of the policing that they got. Well, it's about the connections. And when you when you are a part of the community, then the, there's different right. viewpoint, as we, we discussed in an earlier conversation. There's not that us versus them. It's the, yeah. the police officers are, are their members of your community. They're your neighbors. And, and there's a, a big difference in the attitude. And, and hopefully we'll be making strides to rebuild that, that type of um, you know, interaction again. Well, I think so. I think that will happen, you know, as time goes on. It may take them a while to get back to it, but when they start trying to reinvent the wheel, maybe somebody, you know, will come back and say, we did that once already, and yes, it did work, mm-hmm. you know, maybe. Maybe, yes. Um, you were a street sergeant, and that was different than being yeah. a sergeant, and um, so you responded to many calls. Is there a particular call that... Uh, was was difficult that you care to discuss? Well, I can tell you a difficult call that I had, but it was much earlier in my job. Uh, I was I was a patrol officer, and I was actually kind of on the new side, and I was working with an old, crusty veteran. And we had gotten a call to a brand-new senior citizen's housing uh, building, and everybody had been waiting for this building to open up. It was great. So we go inside, and this grandmother was turning her grandson over to us. 
And I, like I said, I was brand new, so I didn't understand what she was doing. And she was like, <clears throat> the management at that place had certain bylaws, and the bylaw was that no child could live there. And she had stayed past the the amount of time that they had given her. I think she had like a week or two weeks um, that he could stay there, but after then he had to go. He was only three. Mm. He wasn't very verbal. And she just gave him to me. And it's like, ma'am, where's his mother? Well, it turned out that the mother was an, an active addict. So that's why she had the child. Management would not deal with that. So they told her if she wanted to deal with the grandson, she would have to move. And she had waited two years on the waiting list to get in there. And she didn't want to give up her apartment. No, for that, because at any moment, her daughter could walk back into the scene. She just had no idea where she was. Do you know what happened? The boy? Yes, I had to, we had to um, take him down to Boston City Hospital. <clears throat> That's traumatic enough for anybody of any age to go into the emergency room of Boston City Hospital. But I, we had to take him in there. We notified the social worker and someone, for, at the time it was called DSS. Um, I think it's now DCF. Mm -hmm. But um, social services mm -hmm. came in. And they had to take him. As we were walking out the door, the boy who had not been very talkative was screaming, Mommy, Mommy. So I'm looking around trying to see where his mother could be and all I could see were, you know, white disadvantaged males that, that were standing around the, the emergency room. So I turned around and, and looked at him and he was like, Mommy, no. And the social worker let him go just for a second, and he ran, he grabbed my leg. It was like something out of a sad tearjerker movie. It was like, I, and I didn't know what to feel at the time. So I put on my best stoic face, picked him up, walked him back over to the social worker, turned around, never looked back, walked back out the door, got into the cruiser, and my stomach was doing flip-flops. I didn't know how to feel, didn't want to open my mouth and say anything, turned and looked, and that crusty old veteran was just tears flowing out of his eyes. I mean, he just was so sad. And he wouldn't pull out the parking lot. He pulled over to the side. He said, please don't let anyone know I cried. And I said, no, you are right. And... You know, what he told me was that he and his wife had been trying to have children. They couldn't, and they were trying to adopt. And it was such a horrific experience that he said, the idea that this woman was willing to give up a baby when I wanted one so badly. And he, she said she was giving him up for the sake of an apartment. He said, I just don't understand. So needless to say, there was two police officers in a cruiser crying their eyeballs out. But it's something that I remember to this day. And I didn't even have a year on the job when that happened. <laughs> yeah. That's when you realize that 
we never talked about it again. My, me, me or the, the crusty old guy never talked about it again. But the fact that the one thing that was on his mind was don't tell anybody you saw me cry. You know, but that's the job. You know, that, that you couldn't do that. That was considered weakness. And that, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. It's a tragic story, but it's beautiful. The connection that you found with this fellow officer. And I hope that boy yeah. is somewhere safe today. We don't know. Um, in our last interview, we interviewed your former colleague and friend, Dr. Kim Gaddy, as we said. And Kim talked about the emotional impact of responding to suicide calls and of losing fellow officers and friends to suicide. You lost your only child in 2008 to suicide at the age of 23. You and I discussed our children's struggles of depression, and there were similarities and differences, as is often the case with suicide, about our experiences comprehending this horrific loss and the events leading up to it. What, can you tell us what you knew beforehand about your daughter's struggles and what you didn't know before losing her? She was diagnosed as bipolar. And I knew nothing of bipolar. I knew nothing about that mental illness. I had no idea how to deal with it. But as I think I told you in the other conversation, that was something that I thought that as a mental health professional, someone should have at least had a meeting with me, not to tell me exactly what the girl said at her sessions, but to at least say, this is what she's diagnosed with. This is what she's going through, just generally, as a, as a syndrome. I couldn't agree more. I had the same problem when my son was, uh, as I recall, first diagnosed at 17. He Nobody said anything to me about what it was. It was sort of a very perfunctory, here's the paperwork, and um, good luck, and put him in a partial program if you're not going to put him in overnight, which, which we did, and at the time it helped. But I really thought it was just a temporary thing and that he would um, get over it. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it took me a while to understand that depression wasn't just sadness, that she could indeed smile, laugh, tell jokes, and still be clinically depressed. It it just, it it made no sense to me. I was like a deer caught in the headlights. And so we sat down and we talked about it, and it was at the time when I realized that Whatever was going on, I couldn't help. I knew my limitations. I wasn't able to deal with this. And so in talking to her, she she said, kind of what your son said, you would never understand. Yeah. She told me, there is no happy. And I was thoroughly confused, which wasn't uncommon. But I was like, what do you mean there is no happy? She says, do you understand that when I smile, when I joke, when I'm even walking around feeling or looking like I feel calm, I'm not happy. There's still that undercurrent, those voices that are there saying that I don't belong. I'm not worthy. This will never change. This is how you're going to be the rest of your life. I was dumbfounded. Absolutely had no idea. How do I deal with that? As a parent, how do you deal with that? I mean, as a mother, well, as a a parent on a whole, you do not want your children to suffer. 
No, and I, I couldn't agree more. And it's you. So your daughter took her life in 2008, my son in 2016, and and we have those those what ifs and and if only I had those are, are common thoughts of parents who lose lose a loved one to suicide. And it took me a while to stop saying that to myself, but you eventually get there and realize, as you said, there wasn't anything that I I could have done. This was beyond my control. Exactly. Um, and leave us not forget that therapists are human beings also. And they're not, some are more comfortable talking about things that people don't want to talk about. But here in Boston, I mean, Boston's known for being this like puritanical kind of state where you don't talk about sex and you don't talk about mental illness. Because, I mean, if you talk about it or if you ask for help, that's because you're weak. And unfortunately, that was the attitude of a lot of my family members. And it's like, no, it's not weakness. Do you understand how strong someone has to be to be able to recognize and verbalize, I need help? Exactly. We're, we're making progress. We still have talking about, speaking of therapists, um, and this is something that parents need to know as well as, as people who are suffering from depression with therapy, what um, when you're about being put on medication, this is a particularly troubling story to me about what happened with your uh, daughter's uh, therapist and the medication. If you can tell us about that and explain more. All the name of the medication, I believe it's one that's being advertised now. And when they advertise it on TV, they say, you know, possible side effects are, and then whoever's saying it starts speaking at about. 112 miles an hour, so you're like, oh, that's just a side effect. But I wasn't told about, my daughter was given something that was, at the time, brand new, and I wasn't told about it, wasn't told what the possible side effects were, which, after her passing, was told by the therapist that one of the side effects was suicidal ideation, and it's like, why didn't you tell me? And wasn't it? It was in the two-week trial period too, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, shortly after she had gotten on this medication, this happened. You also mentioned that your daughter had tried calling her therapist several times. That's true. She she had tried calling persistently and kept getting her answering service, and she kept leaving messages. Now, as to this therapist's answering service. What actually happened between her and them, I don't know. But the therapist did not call her back. And it was a Tuesday morning when my daughter took her life. I sent the therapist a a sympathy card. And she called me to ask me why had had I done that. And, And I told her, I said, number one, you lost someone also. Number two, I figured that when you got the information from your answering service that she had called persistently to try to get a hold of you and for whatever reason you didn't answer that maybe you would need the sympathy card as much as I need the sympathy cards I received. And, and that's the truth. As, as Just as we talked earlier about my son being given the paperwork and you were never really informed or included in the process, 
this is something if somebody's dying of cancer you include the family and yes. you have to let them know what's going on and this that is the most dangerous period it's they it's been described as playing like playing russian roulette when you're given medications that will uh, interact with your serotonin levels and can become very dangerous so the patients have to be closely monitored and you have to if you're of course people are human but and they need their sleep but there have to be somebody it has oh. to be somebody on call that will respond immediately because that's a crisis situation and two weeks is the minimum um, time period for the you know, medications to be able to uh, do their but, thing something that everybody should be told Yes. Like, like all the family members, well, the family members that they're around, they should be told that this is indeed happening. Mm-hmm. You know, if it hadn't been for the fact that I was the one that took my daughter to the pharmacy to get the prescription filled, I probably would have known. She wasn't at the point where she was sharing a lot of stuff in therapy with me. So it was like, it was to me, it was up to the therapist to at least notify me that she's starting a new medication and the side effects are, or there's a possibility that, you know, and believe me, it was not only shocking, I, I was so angry when I found out afterwards, you know, and it's like, but it's too late now to notify me. What's done is done. It's just too late. You know, maybe if I had known earlier, I could have done something. Probably not, but that was my feelings at the time, you know, and at the time I was hoping that maybe there was something that I could have done. It took me years to realize that there was nothing I could do. Well, that That is something that would make any parent angry, and I've, I've learned from having lost my son, and I even felt this in the very beginning, he had a fight with a good friend who felt responsible, and I said, this was not you, this was my son, John, he suffered from mental illness, and um, this isn't on you, there's always a catalyst when something happens, whether it's a breakup, or a fight, or losing a job, or whatever it might be, um, sometimes it is. it seems impossible, and in our case, it was impossible to reach our children, and you feel so helpless, because... They they can't talk about it. They have fallen into a state of, it's described as getting to a point of near madness because the pain is so debilitating and they can't even form words and thoughts and they can't eat and they can't sleep and they start to become paranoid and it's um, such an awful thing to watch your child go through or you anyone in the... You explained it so well. It is to that point, and, and you don't understand, you, you're not told how to understand, and other people that don't understand, such as family members or even friends, will say, you know, being a parent doesn't come with a handbook. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that doesn't come with a handbook, but neither does mental illness. And it took a lot for me to mention mental illness, because how did we used to describe mental illness? Oh, they're crazy. They're insane. You know, they're mad. That, that's not what you want to do. You want to find some way to get help, and you need to talk about it. That you'll hear people say is, but they were so happy. They were so normal. Well, normal for you and normal for me might be two very different things. That's just the way it is. And because they can smile and laugh and like it doesn't mean that they're okay 
after my daughter died, they put me into peer counseling. Now, that's an experience. One thing that the counselors told me, how are you feeling today? I said, fine. She says, that's not an answer. And I said, what do you mean that's not an answer? What, do you, what else do you want me to say? She said, no. People say fine, so I'll get off their back. People say fine because they don't want to explain how they're feeling right at this moment. But I have to ask you, are you angry? Are you sad? Are you... Where are you on the scale of 1 to 10? Where are you in this spectrum? Where can we find you at? And it was like, I'm all those things. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm sad. My life has now changed dramatically. But as to what exactly I'm feeling, I can't give you a one-word answer, so fine covers it. But that's what my daughter used to say to me all the time. So I was like, hi, how are you? How are you feeling today? She'd say, fine. And after listening to the counselor, I realized that was her way of getting me off her back. When she didn't want to talk about things. Because the week before she took her own life, she was great. Margie, she was laughing and joking and just doing all kinds of funny things. And she was calling friends and... I didn't notice that she was giving friends things. No, she wasn't being morbid about it. She wasn't giving them her deepest, most treasured items, something that would have caught my interest. She was just, you know, I remember you wanted this, that, and the other, so I picked it up for you. I happened to see it. Here you go. And it was just they were having a good time. She was having a good time, or so it seemed. And that is one of the questions I asked the therapist. How could she be like this and then the next Tuesday hang herself? How could she do that? The therapist said, because she had planned to hang herself before then. I said, she told you? And she said, no. She said, but that's the way things go. Once the decision is made to do it, once the plans are made as to how they were going to do it, once all that pressure was taken off their back, they actually felt better. They felt less stressed because they now knew they had in their mind the plan, the way they were going to do it, and at what time it was going to get done. And I remember that Tuesday morning when I got her, she left like 30 notes all over the place, in books, in journals, in letters. I mean, she spent, it must have been weeks, writing up these particular things. but. One thing stood out. She said, why didn't you go to work Monday? And I remember being kind of confused. And then I got angry because it was like, did you really want me to go to work and come home to find you when I got home? I never was able to answer that question until the therapist told me, you know, she had made the plans. You were talking about the the change in behavior, and that is a warning sign when, when they, people, before they take their life, they start to seem at peace and happier, and part of that is, sadly, that they have made the decision. And yeah. She said there is no guidebook for this, but we, I think by including families, it should just be policy to include families 
in the process of understanding what it is like for somebody who has bipolar disorder or another major depressive disorder so that there's a, a communication that can exist. And, and they do have a great program that it eases the burden of that pain when you know you've got not just one therapist that is taking notes and giving you medication and then going home and not thinking about it. You have people watching you and keeping track of you. And when you're critical, of course, this doesn't happen all the time. But when things start to happen, they take care of you. And it's an effective system. And that's what we need to, to be able to address mental health properly when it's, when it's this critical to involve um, family as well as other um, professionals in the mental health care field. But sadly, there aren't enough people working in the mental health care field now, and there aren't enough beds for, for people and proper services that we can, that we and have to address. And that's the one thing that I took note of that Kim talked about, and that was the fact that law enforcement, the big thing about law enforcement was that you had to be macho, and you couldn't show weakness, and God forbid you ask for help. Because help would be just a matter of having somebody else come to help you fight a battle. But it wasn't that, that same idea was not taken and brought to other aspects of the job. And part of the job is we need to take care of each other. And that wasn't done. And one of the things she talked about was feeling isolated at, at suicides because Lord knows we, we responded to lots of suicides. And I was, I think Kim was also a, a critical incident responder. So they used to call us hostage negotiators. But I think that made the beds mad. So they stopped calling us that. But we would go there whenever there was a nasty situation or a barricaded person or someone holding hostages, as a matter of fact. That they would call for us. And the way we trained in the beginning, I was one for over 25 years. Then the way I was trained at the beginning was one way. Then somehow towards the end, they changed how the training would go and what our policy would be. But one thing they never did was a verbal debriefing of, you know, you went into a, a traumatic situation. You were either able to talk someone out or they completed the act. One of, one of two things. What, what is going on with you at that time? We were just left to do an after action report. And that was pretty much it. Then we went back to our regular duties. What I found after doing it for so many years is that there were people who were still responding to the same call years later. They couldn't get it out of their mind. It was just classic. PTSD, and it wasn't being addressed, when are they going to start addressing it? You can't just act like it's going to go away, because it's not. It's not going to just go away. It's, it's like the idea of depression. Well, if you leave it alone, you don't speak about it, it'll go away, and they'll be happy again. And as my daughter said, there is no happy. It's a very stressful job, and certainly mental health affects you know every profession in all walks of life. But uh, first responders particularly have, as you said, the the uh, post traumatic stress and the scenes that they have to go to, and they will replay those events. You you have you, there's no way you can get rid of that unless you have 
um, some debriefing and there's um, EMDR therapy, which helps with sensory treatments that help people go to those, yeah. revisit the scenes and, you know, with the therapist and then be able to release it. And I, I did that after finding my son and, and it was really helpful, but because there is a high incidence of, of suicides among the police force and, and other mental health issues that uh, cause them perhaps to have the, you know, poor behavior that they have in, in certain situations and dealing with something particularly among people of color something that should be handled in a, a very minor way, like a tra traffic incident, and ends up in the death of someone. These are you know, tragic losses that, that could be avoided if we could uh, get help and review police officers, as Kim had suggested, to make sure that there are check-ins. And I know as a teacher, we had, we had to have professional development and we had to prove ourselves and our competence on a regular basis. It wasn't something that you just... You know, took your exam and you got your master's degree and you went and became a teacher, you were constantly under the watch of the administrators and, and had to do these professional development um, things, pieces. You also mentioned um, how you uh, took care of your revolver, if you can share that. It was something because I wouldn't have been able to vocalize that why I did it, but a week or two prior to my daughter's taking her own life, I stopped bringing my gun home. I would take my gun off at work and leave it in my locker. So afterwards, after she took her own life, it came back up and I thought about it. And I said, why did I start to do that? And then I saw something in your book. And it was like, I think, in my mind, deep down, I thought that this may be what's, what was coming but didn't want to deal with it. So I did the same thing you did. I kept myself busy. I did other things. Well, I didn't have to do it myself. The job was really good at keeping me busy. But, you know, that's what I did. I stayed occupied. It's a coping mechanism that we all, a lot of us use, particularly when it's something we is beyond our comprehension and, we, and you feel that helplessness. It's a, a normal response. So you retired in 2009, a year after your daughter's death, and moved out to Georgia. And um, you referenced um, your, the cultural adjustments that you had to make between living in Massachusetts and Georgia. Could you share some of those differences, differences and one in particular about the first piece of mail you received in your mailbox? Ah, oh, my first piece of mail. I just, I was happy because that was the first house I bought on my own. So I was feeling great. So I opened my mailbox. I looked in. There was no mail, but there was a little brochure. And it was a recruitment brochure for the KKK. Mm -hmm. I looked at it, and I was, I, well, you have to understand that people that know me know that I have a certain amount of smart-outness about me. So the first thing I thought of was, they want me to join but then it was the realization that this was done as a method of intimidation. And there was no way I was going to give into that. So it was like, wow. You know, I didn't really think the KKK actually still existed. Didn't realize that it's alive and well and living right here in Snellville. So tragic. And, uh, you know, as a white person, just hearing that, a method of intimidation my, my chest tightened hearing that because I'm fortunate enough not to have to have that experience and um, I'm so sorry that you had to 
put up for that, and you said that for a while they, they continued, did they not? Oh, no, no. After that, that, that was it. There was no more. But there was just that thought that made me more mindful of where I was. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was used to being in Boston, and to me, that kind of thing never had happened in Boston. But it reminded me that I was now moved to the deep south. And that was just something. It never occurred to me that that would happen. But because it did, it was like a, a real vivid reminder of where I was. Or where I still am, for that matter. Kim had said, how did you do it all those years? And what was your secret? She looked up to you. She said you were her mentor and role model. And she wanted to know what was your secret and how did you do it? I'm glad that that Kim feels that way. The thing about it is that Kim is the one that did it. Kim underestimates herself a lot. I learned a lot from Kim. And it's a matter that I did what I had to do at the time. I was a single parent. I was on the job. I had to do what I could do to, to deal with being on the job. One day it could be funny. Another day it could be tragic. You just didn't know what you were going to get from one day to the next. Kim was very good at dealing with that, and Kim was also brilliant. I mean, she's on the Stephen Hawking side of being brilliant, whereas I'm lucky Miss Dorothy from Romperoom will remember my name. You know, so it's it's like I just happened to be at the right place at the right time when certain things were coming up. And as I told you before, I love an audience, so I, it didn't bother me to go and do interviews. But I was no more special than Kim. If Kim had been, well, if she was as old as me, then she would have probably taken the same exams and she would have outscored me and she would have been the first black female. Kim was one that was, yes, Maybe people didn't talk nasty about me, and I appreciate the fact that they talked nicely about me. They were in awe of Kim. They would sit her down, they'd say, you know, we need a program for this, or we need policy for that. And Kim would say, okay. And two days later, you'd have the policy. I mean, that is a special kind of something. I think you are both equally remarkable women, and you were trailblazers, and my hat's off to both of you. It, it wouldn't, Thank you very much. We, before we close, we, we ask every... You have a question I have to ask. Sure. Before you ask my last question, I've got a question for you. Okay. Did you put duct tape on Ben? <laughs> he's just gotten... <laughs> I know he is very quiet today. Normally he does throw in a question or yeah. two, but... He's in, in listening mode, but I think maybe because this is our first remote recording. But, oh, yeah. But Ben, do you have a question on for Cheryl? Before? Well, um, I guess I do. What What are the issues you have with uh, police officers in the past or now? Well, I think now the issues I would have would have to do with training. And the training has changed since we were trained um, way back in the day. You know, I mean, riding those dinosaurs with the little light on top of the head was really something, you know. I mean, uh, we are old, but we had great training. And like I said before, when I mentioned his name, um, Commissioner Bratton 
at the time was coming up as one of the quote unquote golden boys. So he he did things that were incredible. I mean, such as making sure that the police academy was accredited. He would also open the door so that people had chances that might not ordinarily have had chances in other administrations. So, I mean, it was, these are things that I've talked about about Bratton. And a lot of people have problems with Bratton, but Bratton, talk about a trailblazer. Bratton, Bratton is the one that opened the door so people like Kim and I could step through them and make our presence known. You know, something that, that is not done as much as it should be nowadays. And so. I have to say that I am so, actually, I, I don't want to use the word sight, but just the fact that you have brought up situations and, and thoughts that need to be addressed more and more nowadays. And to get back to a sad subject, suicide. It's, it's just something that's not talked about enough. And it, it should be taught, not only talked about, but addressed. And hopefully the right person is hearing this and will open the doors so there will be more open discussions about suicide and, and suicide with veterans, not just cops, not just kids, but veterans also. It's, it's, it is an epidemic and it's something that people need to be aware of it. And unfortunately, if nobody talks about it, the average everyday person will be aware that it is so out there and and unfortunately more frequent than we tend to see. And a way to yes, to address it, to manage it, and to have that understanding and we we know it's it's not likely to be cured, but we can manage it. There are methods that are emerging and, and if we had more funding, a suicide prevention I think has a budget of about six million a year, whereas all other major Illnesses like heart disease and ALS and cancer have, you know, just very very large budgets, and and they've made great strides in reducing the death rate for those illnesses. But suicide has gone up twenty to twenty five percent over the last thirty years. And so people, people need to know that it has risen like that. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing what you're doing with this podcast. And we hope it, it goes places and that we our voices are heard and I hope so. Yeah. Um, so now on on to that the quote. Do you have a quote in mind of uh, from a favorite movie, book, song that you would like to share with us? I don't have a quote, but I have the name of the book. Okay. And it's the Spook Who Sat by the Door by Sam Greenlee. The first part of the book explains what it's like to be a person of color on the police department. This, he was a CIA agent. Um, he became one because a senator was looking at re-election and he needed an issue. So what he brought up was the issue of diversity on the CIA. And because he brought it up, of course, the federal government decided to do something about it. So they developed a program to higher minorities but what they did in actuality was they created this program that he was just not going to pass mm -hmm. however one of them did and this one guy that passed he did become an agent and they were looking for a way to get rid of him they didn't want him there and 
they gave him this great job with like a six-word title to it. And it turned out that once you looked at the analyzed title, you realized that he was the one that was in charge of the copy machine. And he finally realized that he was the token black and that they just had hired him and gave him this position to supposedly show everybody that the CIA had stepped up to the plate and worked on diversity. Sometime when you have a moment to yourself, look on YouTube and there is an episode of Sam Greenlee talking about what happened to that movie and to the book because of what the, supposedly the CIA had it you know, the, the movie taken out of the theaters, and it, it came out in 1973, and not many people saw it. You know, you can watch the whole movie on YouTube if you choose to, but that was not put in the movie, I mean, it was put in the movie theaters, I think they had it in there for two days. Wow. So, I mean, it said something. Thank you so much, Cheryl Pichon, Sergeant Pichon, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure interviewing you, and I'm so glad that you agreed to do this because we've learned a lot, and um, I hope that you enjoyed, enjoyed doing this as much as we enjoyed interviewing you. I certainly did. Thank you. <laughs> today, thank you so much from, from me, Margie, and Ben, my co-host and co-producer. Please subscribe to our podcast, and if you're interested in being interviewed for the podcast, you can email us at findingcolorinthedarkness at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week.